New York Times reporter James Barron wants to introduce us to K0862, and he takes us to New York City to do so in his study titled Piano, the Making of a Steinway Concert Grand. He writes, 88 keys, 240-some strings, a few pedals, and a case about the size of, yes, uh, a bathtub. Every piano has pretty much the same curves outside and the same workings under the lid. But the biography of a piano is the story of many stories. It's the story of the fragile instruments from which all pianos are descended. And it is the story of contrasts. It is the story of 19th century immigrants who struck it rich making pianos, and of more recent immigrants from Europe and Central America who are paid by the hour. It is the story of the family that virtually invented the modern grand piano, of brothers and cousins who drank, who hated the United States, or who dabbled in bulletproof vests and subways and land deals and amusement parks and the earliest automobiles. It is the story of a few workers who have exceptionally good ears and many who have never read a note of music or set foot inside Carnegie Hall. It is a story of men with a passion for motorcycles who've taught themselves snippets of Beethoven and Chopin and of others who tack photographs of Frank Zappa above their workbenches. It is the story of workers who have brought in special radios that receive the audio portion of television broadcasts so they won't miss their talk shows while they drill out the bottoms of keys and shove in tiny lead weights. It's the story of the place where they work, of factory floor, camaraderie, of pleasant, unhurried work. This book is the biography of one piano, that was made by these people in this place. It is a concert grand that was built at the Steinway & Sons factory in New York City in 2003 and 2004. The main character will not make a sound for months. A big supporting cast, the most experienced workers in a factory with a payroll of 450, will fuss over it and fume at it. Like all Steinways, that main character goes by a number not a name, K0862. Like all other newborns, K0862 comes with hopes for greatness and with fears that it may not measure up to the distinguished family name it wears, and not bashfully. On its right arm, the Steinway name is stenciled in big gold letters that an audience cannot miss. On its cast-iron frame, the name is stamped in black letters that a camera closing in on the pianist's face cannot miss. There is no mistaking K0862 for a Baldwin or a Yamaha or a Bisendorfer. Meanwhile, pianists always say that a good piano has personality. But the workers know that a piano is a machine, or the 18th century's idea of one. But... What a different machine is a piano, a machine with emotions, if that is possible, or at least emotional attachments. There are pianists who kiss their pianos every day, who touch the case as tenderly as they would touch a lover's cheek, who talk to their pianos in a way they talk to no one. Musicians regularly talk about the individual characteristics of this or that piano, 
the traits that make one a pleasure to play and the one next to it an agonizing slog. They dream of one that can deliver what Beethoven's pupil Carl Czerny called a holy, distant, and celestial harmony. Even before its first note sounds, the question hanging over K0862 is the question that hangs over every Steinway. How good is it? Will it be a lemon or the piano world version of a zero to 60 delight? Will it sound like celestial harmony or a squadron of dive bombers, as the pianist Gary Grafman said of a Steinway he hated on first hearing, but came to love? Someone walking through the factory, following a single piano as it takes shape, could forget a basic fact. Every Steinway is made the same way, from the same materials, by the same workers. Yet every Steinway ends up being different from every other, not in appearance perhaps, but in ways that are not easily put into words. Colorations of sound, nuances of strength or delicacy, what many pianists call, and here's that word again, personality. Some Steinways end up sounding small and mellow, which is fine for chamber music. Some are so big and muscular and percussive that a full-strength orchestra cannot drown them out. On some, the keys move with little effort. On others, the pianist's hands and arms get a workout. Why is one piano different from another? No one really knows. Words of James Barron from his study titled Piano, The Making of a Steinway Concert Grand, issued by Macmillan. Barron just introduced us to K0862, a Steinway Concert Grand, and he asks, how is it that K0862 is a machine that's been produced by the Steinway factory in New York, but which is so much more than the sum of its parts? It's many, many, many parts. Esteemed pianist Eugene Abulescu is intrigued by that mystery. Technology, personality, creativity. And he has been entrusted with the task of sitting on piano bench after piano bench and at Steinway piano keyboard after keyboard until he found the right one, the very best one, for Lehigh University in Bethlehem. Eugene Abulescu is a professor of orchestral studies, piano, keyboard, harmony, skills, and literature at Lehigh University. He is an award-winning performer and conductor who holds the Ronald J. Ulrich Endowed Chair in Orchestral Studies. He started his piano studies in Romania at the age of six at the Inescu Music School in Bucharest. His family moved to New Zealand in 1984 to escape Romania's communist regime. Abulescu completed his musical studies at Indiana University, where, at 19, he was the youngest person ever to reach the level of assistant instructor. He emerged on the international scene in 1994, when his debut CD was awarded the International Grand Prix List, this recording. A 
and that award added Albulescu's name to the list of winners, which include Alfred Brendel, Claudio Orao, Vladimir Horowitz, and George Bolet. Since then, Albulescu has performed worldwide, including at the Dame Myra Hess Memorial Concerts in Chicago, Barge Music in New York, the Purely Piano Series in Auckland, New Zealand, the Stern Auditorium at Carnegie Hall in New York. Celebrated critic Harold C. Schoenberg hailed Abulescu's power and infallible fingers of steel, declaring that nothing anywhere has any terrors for him. Eugene Abulescu is so very excited to introduce this remarkable new Steinway concert grand to the Lehigh community and to all of us in a recital this Sunday afternoon at the Zollner Arts Center on the campus in Bethlehem. And by the time he finished introducing this brand new piano to us on Zoom, he had delightedly come up with an informal tentative name for the personality packed piano. No numbers there. And that's how we'll sense he's made a truly fitting choice for the campus. We began by learning about Eugene's early relationship with pianos. I loved piano my whole life. I started very early and I started playing the piano and then I took a hiatus for about four years from piano when I studied percussion between ages of nine and 13. And it was a, it was a natural choice to slide over because my father was a professional percussionist. He was a member of the National Orchestra in Romania. And I came back uh, to the piano when my family moved to New Zealand and uh, I was stuck with not knowing how to speak English, amongst other things, and lack of friends and culture shock, and took to the piano as a refuge. And uh, I really, really fell in love for the second time with the instrument, and it's been my thing ever since. The, the irony was the reason why I originally quit when I was nine was because, you know, the typical parental, uh, you have to practice, etc., and then they they would do all these uh, threatening that they're going to sell the piano if I don't practice. So eventually I called their bluff and I said, sure, okay, go ahead. But the irony of the whole thing was during my hiatus, I switched to percussion. I thought I'm going to be done with piano, but I was at a music school. And it turns out that you still had to do piano. Secondary piano was required of all students. So I thought, you got to be kidding me. Uh, so I couldn't escape it even when I didn't do piano. So it's been my thing. And uh, I love it. You know, playing the piano is, in some ways, professionally, very different from other instruments in that you, you don't take it with you. On one hand, you get to play the best instruments if it's a good concert hall, and sometimes you get to play not-so-good instruments, and so you get to the venue and you find out, you just like, here we go, uh, there's that not knowing. But then, within like an hour of practicing it, you you form like a little relationship because you get to meet this thing and uh, then you figure out okay how does it like to sing and how do you how can you adapt how you know what you know what you want to happen in the repertoire with this instrument and i find that there's a certain amount of flexibility it's a partnership like you were saying between the artist and the instrument and the instrument is always different for us there are mentions online of your interest in coupling two concepts, piano technology and creativity. Yeah. What do you mean by that? 
you see every instrument is unique in their own way. If you look at the flute, it's, it's such an uh, expressive instrument, but the range is limited uh, to like three octaves or, or what have you. And so the piano is a very complete instrument in terms of range, but it has some other, you know, slight shortcomings. You cannot do a crescendo. You cannot do a, a sound that rises on one note. So every note on a piano always descends. If you want to do a crescendo, you need at least two notes on the piano. So one and then the next one will be louder. You cannot do like the way you'd sing a sound and then, and then get louder while you're singing it. So I've always been fascinated by the history of the instrument and that dance between, on one hand, you have inventors and manufacturers that were trying to circumvent very shortcomings of the instrument. And then on the other hand, you have composers and uh, artists that are doing the same, but from a playing point of view. And it's the interaction between these two things that is, is when those, those two in, invention types interact, that that's, that's really what interests me. And you could trace that you know, back to Cristofori, who he's the kind of the father of the piano as we, as we consider it today. He's the first guy that you know, asked the question, how can we make this instrument expressive so that you can play louder and soft? Because on a harpsichord and the organ, you couldn't do that. And so he revolutionized the whole thing by introducing the hammer action, like where, where the strings are hit and didn't, didn't have a name for it. Uh, so he called it a very mouthful Italian name, Gravicembala col piano e forte, which means harpsichord with loud and soft, which then got shortened to pianoforte or forte piano, depending on who's writing it. So the loud, soft, and then now we just call it the piano. But my point is that just as Cristofori was trying to do that, if you look at the music of Scarlatti and the other great keyboardists, uh, Bach, uh, Rameau, they were doing the same, but they were doing it through their writing. They were trying to get the piano to play loud and soft, but without the pressure on the finger being able to, to do that. So it's not that these instruments could not play loud and soft. They couldn't, but the, the composers were trying to deal with it in some way, and then the inventors and the manufacturer were trying to deal with it in another way. So that's kind of why I find the looking at the history of it, which is ongoing, because it hasn't stopped. We're still coming up with new technology ways. I find that that study is fascinating because that it's that interaction between technology and creativity that you could use for other fields. And I love teaching that at Lehigh. And you use the word the dance, and it is like a dialectic or a dance, isn't it, in that exactly, way? it is. We have, and we feature on our air, the Liszt recording that you did. Aren't there two, at least, portraits of Liszt at a piano? One, one maybe a Chickering and one at the Steinway. Did Liszt really play a Steinway piano? He did. There's a very famous letter to the Steinway people. So Steinway claims Liszt as one of the Steinway artists, which I'm one of them. So it's kind of a great uh, honor to feel like, wow, uh, <laughs> being a Steinway artist is, is uh, it's great. But I don't think Liszt was technically a Steinway artist. He did play Steinway, and he did endorse Steinway. And he, you see, Steinway revolutionized the whole piano manufacturing by introducing what we call the cross-stringing, um, the placement of strings. Prior to Steinway, all the strings were parallel. And then what Steinway did in around the 1850s, late 50s, they crossed them so that the bass strings can go over some of the mid-bass strings. And what that means is that the mid-bass strings can be much longer. So the piano maintains the Pythagorean ratios, which means that every octave the strings double. 
but then it actually goes out of whack and it, it gives the piano an extra resonance in a middle register. And Liszt loved that. And in fact, there's a famous letter that he wrote late in his life when he said that, I don't know how you guys do it because I don't know much about the technology, but this sounds really incredible. But you are right, uh, at the Liszt Museum in Budapest, by looking around, you realize that Liszt started out with Erars and then also played play L's, but he really did have a nine-foot chickering that he absolutely adored, and that was the last nine-foot that he had. But towards the end of his life, as you know, he, he got more involved in composition and in teaching. In fact, the, the museum, which is the Liszt House, is the Liszt Academy, which is the conservatory, which he started and where he lived. So the museum is his actual apartment in the building that he helped fund. And most of the pictures of Liszt during his final years, where, which is where he lived, really have him at an upright piano, not a nine foot. Are there extra considerations when you're recording an album? Well, you know, prepping the instrument for a recording, that's a big deal for us. With the pianos, you have the coincidence of two things that need to happen, is the sound of the piano and the mechanics of the piano, and both have to work very flawless. And the part of the mechanics also involve the sound, because the hammer voicing is a, a major part of the tonal quality of the instrument. So we do rely on other people to do all that work because uh, pianists used to tune their own instruments too, the way violinists do. But starting with the 19th century, the instruments become too heavy and too cumbersome and that's, now you have a new profession of piano tuner or piano technician. But you are, you are always, as you said, you're always quite aware of what's happening because when we record, we, all, we often push the piano to its limit the limit of how soft it could play. In the case of lists during the La Campanella, how fast the note can be repeated, which has to do with a repetition spring. And uh, if, it's not, if it's not just right, it's a Goldilocks thing. If it's too tight, it doesn't work. If it's too... Somebody once explained to me that there's more moving parts in the piano than there are in a car. And there's so many types of materials. There's felt. Uh, so there's organic materials. There's at least 15 species of wood that go into any piano. There's all sorts of metals and brass and steel and forged iron and it's a it's a very complicated thing and most people don't realize when they play this the fact that any piano bears with this the history of how the manufacturing and how it came to be that we designed these instruments so that it's a box of buttons and we make it sing and we make it sing like a human. And uh, it's, it's just, it's, it, despite its shortcomings, the fact that the notes always keep dying on us, every note on the piano always will descend into absolute nothingness if you allow it to, to vibrate, we still can make it sing. And it's just extraordinary and it's very enjoyable. This is a wonderful introduction to what you have been charged with in selecting and making sure that Lehigh has a magnificent piano for the present and the years to come. Uh, Lehigh, uh, we've been very fortunate through the great help from the College of Arts and Sciences, which we're a part of, our department. They have helped us by purchasing this instrument. It's an extraordinary instrument. It really is an extraordinary instrument. I don't say that lightly. It's probably one of the most advanced pianos ever manufactured. It's a normal Steinway Concert D, manufactured in the New York factory, but it has an overlaid addition of a player mechanism, so it's a, what they call a Spirio Steinway. 
And uh, Steinway has this technology and some of their high-end pianos. Basically, it could record 100% of what you're doing and it can play it back. So it opens up phenomenal teaching tools for us so that when we're doing a masterclass, when we're talking about what a student did, we could say, now you come around and listen to what you played. And it's not a recording that you're listening. You're actually listening to your playing this piano and you're actually hearing the actual piano and let alone the other applications such as distance learning you could actually play the piano in one country but in another country they could see over a screen but then the other piano plays as if you're there so you could do distance education you could do compositions that includes piano that plays certain things while you're overlaying a couple of other things so we've only just uh, scratched the surface and Steinway has uh, quite a lot of what they call superior casts. So they have broadcasts that you could watch live somebody from a different concert hall. And the piano comes with an iPad and you could basically see the video on the iPad and you hear the piano playing. It's, it's really remarkable. And so I was uh, instrumental in, um, in selecting the instrument. I was not instrumental in paying for it. Uh, the College of Arts and Sciences did. So we were very, 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 very grateful for that because as you know, pianos are not very cheap. And the selection process meant selecting an instrument very carefully based on the first and foremost, it has to be a good piano. And it's, uh, it's really a stellar instrument. Did you have to commute back and forth and sit there and listen to it? Yeah, so the, the selection process includes, first of all, finding an instrument that comes out the factory and then saying, yes, this is what we want. And you, and you choose it based on a number of parameters, and it has to sound good in a variety of settings. And so the, the settings that we usually assume are usually stylistic. So it, it has to sound good in Baroque music, it has to sound good in classical music, it has to sound good in Romantic music, it has to sound good in modern music, it has to sound good in jazz, and it has to sound good in pop. And and the reason Steinway is at the top of the pile in pianos and is the standard bearer in pianos worldwide is because their pianos sound good in all of the above. And so that goes without saying. But having said that, even in the realm of Steinways, you could have a piano that is extremely bombastic, that's going to be a phenomenal instrument if you were to play a Tchaikovsky piano concerto that might not be good in a chamber music setting, even though it sounds good, let's say, in Mozart, but if you were to play a Mozart piano trio, you'd be just burying everybody. So you have to kind of, first of all, choose the piano that is, is good enough for the number of settings that is, is going to be asked to do. And then secondly, uh, we work with their technicians after it's been delivered here and it's had a, a little time to kind of settle into the new environment. Uh, for the wood to, you know, finish its expansion, for the felt to compact and all that stuff. And then they work to prep it for performance for the space in which it is. And so that's what we've been doing for the last part of, uh, of this year. And now you're going to introduce the instrument to the community of Lehigh, the community at large, and you need then to decide on music to play that showcases some of the beauties of this instrument. So what did you think about? Well, I started with a, a Bach piece because I felt strongly that Bach being the foundation of all music uh, that's keyboard, Bach, of course, being one of the greatest composers ever, 
but also Bach being the foundation of uh, Beethoven's studies. When Beethoven was an organ student as a kid, he studied the works of Bach. We know that from his organ teacher. And then everybody after him, from Chopin to Liszt to Rachmaninoff, all the greats, uh, it's, in the, it's in the DNA of everybody else, not just the, the performers, but the composers. And so because of that, I felt like the piano has to sound good with Bach or else is, is no go. <laughs> so I'm playing uh, an English suite by Bach. Um, and then I selected a, a classical sonata, which is on one of my other CDs, a Haydn sonata and E-flat. And then for the second half, I thought a lot in terms of like what I should be doing. And I settled on um, Chopin. And so I'm doing a, an all Chopin second half, kind of putting it through its paces through some of the great piano literature of the Romantic era. So it's basically about maybe 35 minutes of Chopin, and it's about one of each of the great genres that Chopin championed. So I'm doing a polonaise and a nocturne and a ballade and a scherzo and an etude and things like that. This is just the start then, Eugene, of the chances we'll have to experience this instrument is it too early to say that it has a presence? Does it have a personality already? Yes, yes, absolutely. And that's the uh, the question is, what are we going to call it? Uh, do we have a name for it? Our old piano, the students made up a name for it. It was called the, the, the Big Bertha. I didn't come up with it myself. So yes, it, uh, it definitely has a personality. And that's one of the important things for me. If a piano has a personality, Often what it does is in a partnership, and you notice that when you're playing live, when you're playing a note and the next note kind of already, you feel like it knows how it wants to be played. And in some ways, you just have to get out of the way and let it do its thing, where you, you don't push so much, but you ask the question, what do you want to do after this? And often what you get is a, a very interesting conception of the piece that you might not have thought entirely, but it, it's a good piano with a personality in my book changes your outlook a little bit. And you might have planned to do it this way, but the piano says, what about this way? And it's not necessarily that it's less cool or it's not a, it's not a judgment of a, a good, bad, but it's, uh, it's interesting and it's, it's surprising. It can surprise you and, and, and help in the creative process, which is really what, what, uh, what we're there to do. We're not there to offer the audience exactly how we feel this piece should, should be played. We're there to communicate and, and establish a link with the audience in a unique way that cannot be replicated in recordings. And it cannot be replicated even live again because the conditions will not be the same. And so it's that moment in time. That's why people go to see a live concert. And the piano is, in my book, a good piano becomes a partner in that moment, in the creation of that moment. And there's a dialogue always that goes on, and it, and it goes on when we teach, and it, uh, it goes on when we perform, and it's just listening. I think it's, it's a two-way thing. It, being inspired, being inspired by an audience is, is a big deal for me. They have a, they, they have a saying that uh, an artist is only as good as their audience. And uh, I think it's totally true. Sometimes uh, you, you sense if an audience is, is enjoying and is giving you extra, you know, the, the butterflies, I always find, find those very useful because that's, that's, 
that's what makes the performance happen. It's, uh, it's, it's that's the magic. And uh, you prepare so that you can withstand the awesomeness of the magic, you know. But with us in the piano world, you also have the limitation of what an instrument will do. And it's great to be able to perform on an instrument that that, that can do so much. So you don't feel that that there is a, a big limitation there, whatever its name is. <laughs> And I would say, having played on it so so far, if I had to come up with a name, I know it's going to sound funny. Absolutely fabulous. <laughs> That's what I would call it. <laughs> Eugene Albalescu, professor in the Lehigh University Music Department. He's an award-winning pianist and conductor who is a Steinway artist. He was speaking with us about the brand-new state-of-the-art Steinway Concert Grand Piano that has been purchased for the university through the generosity of the College of Arts and Sciences at Lehigh. Eugene Avalescu will offer a recital to introduce us to Absolutely Fabulous. That's its name. He's tentatively calling it Absolutely Fabulous. And it is Sunday afternoon, March 3rd, at 3 o'clock in Baker Hall, at the Zollner Arts Center on the Lehigh University campus in Bethlehem. He'll perform an English suite by Johann Sebastian Bach, a keyboard sonata in E-flat major by Joseph Haydn, and a number of pieces by Chopin. For more information, on the web, zollnerartscenter.org, Z-O-E-L-L-N-E-R, zollnerartscenter.org. That is Eugene Albalescu in performance in Baker Hall at the Zollner Arts Center on the Lehigh University campus in Bethlehem this Sunday, March 3rd at 3 o'clock, Bach, Haydn, and Chopin. For more information, zollnerartscenter.org, Z-O-E-L-L-N-E-R, zollnerartscenter.org. This is Eugene Abulescu with Piano Music of Franz Liszt. This is the disc that won the Grand Prix Liszt. <laughs>